Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Joseph. So happy to have you on the show. Hi, Jeremy. Really excited to be here as well. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for coming on because I'm really excited uh, to share about not only your uh, really intense journey as a founder uh, and building a company from scratch to where you are today, but you're also tackling a very key problem, right, Um, of uh, really digitizing hotel operations uh, in this really incredible and straightforward way from my perspective. So I'm really excited to hear your story. Um, so for those who don't know you yet, how would you uh, share and explain who you are? Well, my name is Joseph. I'm the founder and CEO of Vouch. And at Vouch, we work with hotels to build digital concierges that increase productivity, boost revenue, and elevate the guest experience. Um, I'm a 34-year-old father of three. Uh, it's been a, a really, really challenging journey starting up while juggling a relatively large family. In fact, work from home has been especially brutal, especially brutal. Um, I love playing football, although I haven't had much time to play football the last few years. But yeah, in a, in a nutshell, that's me. When I you know, first kind of like heard about you, I knew that you had obviously first started out uh, in the civil service. Uh, and that's where you kind of like first started your career. Could you tell me us a little bit more about why you joined um, them in the early days? And then we'll kind of go from there. Maybe how I can tell this story is that it revolves around my motivations. When I, was in, uh, when, I, when I was back studying in university, I was actually really, really uh, motivated by money, right? I mean, as, as, as sad as that was, I was really motivated by money. Um, initially, in my early years, I was thinking about, hey, you know what? Why don't I, I try to go to become an investment banker because that's where the money is, right? And then later on, in, in year three, year four, I started to see, hey, uh, uh, it looks like there's this whole startup ecosystem that's coming up. People seem to be making money out of it. Why don't I go start up my own, my own company? And... Uh, uh, so I, I did, I started thinking about that. How can I do that? How can I uh, uh, begin starting up? And there was a scholarship offer that came along from Spring Singapore. Now it's called ESG, where uh, uh, the, the tagline of it was be your own boss. The intention of the scholarship was really to nurture a new generation of entrepreneurs, a new generation of people who can start up, who can run their own SMEs, which can eventually grow into MNCs. So. When I saw that scholarship, I decided, hey, let me go for it. Let me take it up. And, 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 I, and I bid it for it. And I, I applied for it. I got it. And then I, that's how I ended up at Spring in the civil service. When I was at Spring, um, I think that motivation still remained. Uh, it was mainly about money. I wanted to start up so that I could make it big, earn, earn lots of big bucks and all that. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I learned as much as I could over there. I was inside the innovation and startups group, so dealing directly with startups. Uh, specifically, I was dealing with uh, startup financing, looking at how, making sure that there's enough Series A, B, C funding. Um, uh, and I learned a lot. And right on the dot, uh, at the end of my scholarship, um, I actually left. And I remember when I left, uh, the HR came up to me and said, hey, Joe, you're, you're actually um, uh, inside the government, there's this thing called CEP. I can't remember what it stands for. Basically, they, they, they give you your, they kind of map out your potential. So they were telling me that, hey, your CEP is really, really high. If you stay at Spring, you're probably going to go really, really far. But I, I immediately told them that, hey, I, I wanted to start up. Um, this isn't really going to stop me. So I left after two years. I, uh, I had this misconception where I, I thought, 
if I'm going to be a tech founder, I got to learn how to code. So then I started learning how to code. I spent uh, 18 hour days stuck in a room, uh, learning how to code for six months, um, managed to pick up full stack engineering where I could uh, build the infrastructure, deploy front end facing apps and started to do projects for uh, different different players like Marigold, building apps for them. And uh, at some point I decided, okay, enough is enough. I think I've learned uh, how to build tech products. Let me go start up. And so I started the company. I started Vouch at that point in time, 2016 February. Um, and at that point in time, we were, we were really uh, doing something completely different from what we do now. I was looking at how do we uh, use big data to um, help retailers better target their customers through advertising. So the intention was to collect data from all these big retailers, put them together. And if let's say at the surface level, let's say we see some see that 60% of people that shop at Nike also shop at Cotton On. Next on some, someone shops at Nike, we can give them a voucher for Cotton On. So that, that's actually why we're called Vouch because we were using vouchers as the vehicle through which we deliver value, right? But uh, uh, unfortunately, at that point in time, being a first-time entrepreneur, um, I had this impression that you know you build something useful, people will come. We built something that no one was willing to pay for. So the biggest mistake that we made over there was we built a platform uh, that we that I thought was useful. Hired a team to do it, got a government grant, hired a team, built something, and turns out that none of the retailers were willing to pay for it. They would always tell me, "Yeah, you add this feature, I'm gonna uh, then I'll pay for it." And when we add the feature, they'll say, "No, no, you add this other thing, and then I'll pay for it." And that was when I realized um, at some point that they were really never going to pay for it. We ran out of money. I had to let everybody go, a really painful experience. Um, and then uh, uh, we had to pivot. So um, at this point in time, my motivations were starting to change as well. I started to, to, rather than going for the money, I was thinking, hey, you know what? I don't really care about the money. What I've been doing in the last six to eight months has been really meaningful. Uh, what I really want to do is create something that is of value to the people that use it. And that's when the motivations really started changing. So our first pivot was towards uh, chatbots for retailer, for people that, for social commerce. Chatbots for people selling things on Facebook in Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam. They're actually quite a, quite a number. This was a, a number of years ago before, came up, before Facebook came up with their marketplace and, and, and all that. And what we were trying to do was, uh, uh, and the problem that we were trying to solve was this. We realized that uh, as with Carousel, people ask stupid questions. You have the description over there. This thing has warranty until this date. People still ask, does this thing have warranty? You know, And these sellers on Facebook, they were running a business where uh, their, their entire livelihood was based around Facebook selling. They were getting like 90 to 100 queries every single day. It was just unsustainable for them. So what we offered to them was this app where they press one button, it would deploy onto their Facebook page, automatically parse what they were selling and answer these questions automatically. Sellers loved it. The buyers, uh, not so much. Um, which we only realized later on. So we were able to get significant traction very quickly uh, just by word of mouth. And these guys were paying for it. We wanted to make sure that we didn't make the same mistake the first time around. We started charging these guys right off the bat. Now the problem came, the second time around came when we realized that the buyers uh, weren't buying at the same rate that they were doing before our app was installed. Um, and it turns out that social commerce is actually a pretty complicated animal. People will say, if I buy A, B, and C, can you give me a discount? Uh, and chatbots are horrible at, at, at negotiating on this sort of thing, right? So, so when, when that happened and the sellers realized that their revenue was, was dipping, they all started to churn. And we really couldn't stem the tide of that churn. Churn rate was like 90%, that kind of really, really high uh, number. We tried whatever we could to salvage the situation, realized that it really wasn't salvageable, and we ran out of money a second time. And that was when I had to let everybody go again. Uh, horrible, horrible experience for the second time. And it was a really big turning point where 
um, at this point, my wife was pregnant with our third child, my third daughter. Uh, we had no money. Uh, I had already pumped in all my life savings into the company. I think we had like $3,000 back in our personal account. Company had like three hundred. We were pregnant with our third child, all the threes, right? So so nicely lined up. And uh, um, yeah, and I had to make the decision, was I going to continue uh, trying to figure something else out on my own because everybody, I had to let go of everyone or was I going to start finding another job? Um, I got a couple of job offers, really, really lucrative job offers, but I thought, you know what? Let me just give this one more shot and see where, where it takes us. So I started to, to, to look for opportunities where we could use the chatbot technology that we had created uh, to uh, service companies, service businesses. And we were able to bring in a, a few deals. I was able to bring in a few deals, generate a bit of revenue, use what we had built uh, in a different manner, pivot a little bit, building chatbots for anyone and everyone. So we were able to bring in a little bit of revenue. I managed to, to convince a couple of angel investors to put in money to, to float the company a bit more. And that's where we started to, to, to bring in significant revenue. And then our real turning point actually came when we started working with hotels. The Singapore Tourism Board, they actually had this uh, uh, Hotels Innovation Challenge where they invited hotels to come uh, to a conference uh, way back when pre-COVID, when there were still conferences and, and see whether there were any technology solution providers that they were interested in adopting. And at this point, we were able to bring in Andas Singapore, which was under the Hyatt family. This is GM that was, uh, was a visionary and really, really brave. He said, you know what? I, I, I think that chatbots can really help hotels. Can you come and develop one for me? I will pay you for it. And so we started working with Andas Singapore and we, we built a chatbot to answer queries for their call center and for their front desk. Very quickly, we realized that the ROI over there was really, really high. We were able to significantly reduce the number of queries that went to their front desk and to their uh, uh, call center. And uh, one thing led to another. We actually used the data that we gathered to continue building new products. And we're here where we are now, where we now have more than 25% of the Singapore market. And we're deployed in 10 different countries around the world. Uh, uh, and we're growing really, really fast. So that's the, the journey of the company. That's the journey as an entrepreneur that I experienced. It was a really tough journey. Um, I believe it still continues to be tough, uh, but all these experiences have made me who I am today. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I knew the story, but uh, it still kind of like, you know, shakes me even, you know, kind of hearing it again uh, now. So obviously we'll talk about the company and what you're approaching on the second half of it. And I think it's very disruptive sure. uh, and honestly innovative. Uh, but let's also talk about, you know, what's you know, kind of going on for you, right? Because, you know, you, you know, the thing I want to zoom in on is like, okay, there you are. And basically your boss at, you know, uh, Spring Singapore, you know, is basically saying, hey, you know, you're doing a great job working about startups and our angel investor and our business partners and ecosystem. And basically they're saying like you have a fast track slash promotion in the future and you still say, no, I want to build something. What was that like? How did you make that decision? So I think it's the, the classic question that all entrepreneurs need to grapple with, right? How do you weigh up your opportunity cost? Um, but for myself, I think my decision was a lot easier. And um, it's, it's a little bit because of my upbringing and also because of the way that I, I see this. So my, my parents have always been very, very supportive of everything that I do. Um, even though they, they put me through the good schools, uh, made sure that I got good results. All the way, my mom had always maintained, you know what, you do what you want to do. You don't have to become a doctor. You don't have to become a lawyer. You don't have to, to earn big bucks. It doesn't matter. Just 
do something that you you're happy doing. So when I decided to to leave my 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 job in the in the civil service, um, I I never had that sort of baggage that many other people have, where you know their family would tell them, hey, are you sure this is gonna work out? Uh, uh, how long do you give yourself? Uh, uh, what happens if it doesn't work out? What's gonna happen to your family? I never had any of that. It was more of like, yeah, you, if you think it's gonna uh, go for, if you think it's gonna work, just go for it. Even if it doesn't work, what's the worst that could happen, right? And that was also why I was thinking, what is the worst that could happen? So to me, the way that I saw this opportunity cost was was like this. I was looking at it and thinking, you know, even if I start up and I fail and I lose all my money, right? With the kind of credentials and the track record that I have, I probably can get a job somewhere else. And I'm not picky, right? I could get a job doing uh, maybe maybe earning low 3,000s, that, that kind of thing. And I'd still be okay. Um, something to survive, something to, to get by. Um, so I, I never ever had that, that, that fear that, okay, what if I, I lose out? Or, and I never ever thought about it the way that many people think about uh, where I'm sure they start thinking, okay, now I'm earning 6K, 10K a month. If I go at this for two years, how much am I losing out? It never ever occurred to me that way. So I, I've never seen money as um, something that is hard to come by or is something that uh, uh, will be difficult to, to earn. Uh, I've never ever, I, I always lead a simple life. Um, even now I don't have a car. I don't have, uh, I live in a HDB flat. I don't, um, the only thing that I splurge a little bit on is maybe tech, like my, my iPad Pro, uh, my iMac, you know, other than that, really, I don't spend, I don't drink, I don't smoke. So all these vices, not, not, not there. I don't have to spend on it. So I lead a simple life. And, and so money hasn't really ever uh, been a problem. Yeah. It did motivate me when I was younger to make lots of money. Uh, but it was never, I never ever saw, saw it as a, and, and something that should hold me back from what I wanted to do. Yeah. So the decision was really, really easy. And to me in the civil service, one of the things that struck me was that everything that I do there probably has a really long lead time before I start to see results. Whatever I do in the strategy and policy department, implementing new things, I probably can only see results five years, 10 years down the road. And I really wasn't happy with that. I wanted to, to it wasn't instant gratification that I was looking for, but I wanted to make a difference right now. And so those were, those was one of the, that was one of the big factors that pushed me to leave. Yeah. So it was a, it was really an easy decision. Even when uh, the HR folks start, and my boss started telling me, hey, you have a bright future here. Why don't you stay on? I never actually thought twice about it. It was like, it, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Oof. Uh, that was like, must have been a quite an interesting experience because it was both a simple one for you, right? Even though for most people, that's the scariest one, right? We're just leaving a full-time job to do a startup. But it feels like the next, you know, decision, which was like, you build the first approach, yeah, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of fail the first time they build something, right? Because, you know, they're not sure about what to build and what the demand is and so and so forth. So I, the more interesting decision actually is your, you know, the second decision you made, right? Which was to keep going, right? <laughs> you know, because there you are, you're out of cash, right? You put some money in as well. So that's actually the more interesting decision because now you know what entrepreneurship is, right? Uh, and now you know what it cost is, right? Because... When you're leaving, I think for me, it was like when you leave a job, you don't know like what's it like to let go of people. You don't know what's it like to build a company. Yeah. You don't know what's it like to like let it go um, and move on. So the second decision you had to make where you now know the opportunity cost has been made real um, because you've spent that opportunity cost over what, two years? And then you also feel the real cost, right? So why did you decide to keep going? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a really great question, Jeremy. And um I mean, I, I can't really say for sure. I mean, I can't really say for sure whether it was, it was pride, whether it was uh, 
uh, uh, raw confidence or whether it was a whether it was a a, a crazed a crazy a crazy decision. But uh, what I did know what I did know was that entrepreneurship building something that really matters to people is something that I want to do. Uh, to me, at that point in time, I felt that I had options. If I gave it one last shot, even if I had like zero in the bank account, uh, even if I gave it one last shot, um, I still had the family support. Uh, my, my family, my family by, is by no means rich or, or wealthy, but I have three siblings and, and my parents. And uh, in, in the worst case, they would be able to help out for a while. So to me, it was it was uh, uh yeah just go for it right and 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 we'll deal with with what what happens later on and I don't and there is a soft landing for me there was a soft landing it wouldn't be like a a, a lot of money in my family that they can can support me and all that but I knew that my siblings my parents would be my wife would be there to support me no matter what my wife was working at this point in time so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that bad so it feels like you know you had the first decision was relatively simple because you didn't know what was really at cost or at play. The second time you did it, it's too straightforward because you felt like you still could keep going. But the third time you make a decision to keep going was even tougher, right? Because now that you said you have uh, another kid, a third kid, you're pregnant. Um, you know, you've died twice now. So that would be enough to knock, you know, uh, you know, sense into anybody right about what sense. is actually a cost right <laughs> you know i mean it's tough right you know <laughs> yeah so i i think the 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 way that i thought about it was uh maybe 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 i didn't have common sense right but uh the way that i thought about it hey you know we've run out of money twice i've learned these lessons along the way it only gets easier right so for example the first time around i learned that you don't build something that nobody wants make sure that people are willing to pay for it. And that's something that we, we, we always do right now at Vouch. Whenever we launch new products, we make sure that we get uh, customers to pay for it. Uh, sometimes even before we build anything. Um, um, we, uh, the, the, the second time around was more about uh, product market fit where um, we need to make sure that the, 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 the product really works well for them uh, despite the, the, the different challenges that, that might come up. We need to find a, a way to, to get whatever we built to to work for them, even if they, they initially like it, it really has to work for their market. Otherwise, um, they're gonna they're gonna churn. So we also took that and we, we learned from it. We made sure that we didn't make the same mistake. So so when I was considering whether to try it one more time, what what how I rationalized it was, hey, I've learned all these lessons. Um, I could choose to to try it again sometime down the road. Uh, find a job first and then later on try again, or I could try to go it again and, and see what comes out of it. Um. And one of the, I remember one of the things that I was thinking about is that, hey, I'm, I'm still young. Uh, at that point in time, I think I was 30, 31, 30, 31. Yeah. And uh, uh, if I don't do this now, who knows, right? What if the fourth kid comes along, the fifth kid comes along? <laughs> it's going to get harder and harder for me from a, from a commitment point of view. And I think that I also didn't want to get um, sucked into the, the corporate lifestyle where, you know, people get sucked in, they earn, they start earning a certain uh, amount of income. They start building a lifestyle that requires that level of income to sustain. So it really gets harder and harder. So the way that I rationalized was that, you know, I, I learned all these things. They're still fresh in my memory. Before I, I become too heavily burdened with uh, life's commitments, why not just give it another shot? And um, I mean, at that point in time, I was thinking, okay, this is the last shot that I'm going to give it. But then again, now that I reflect, 
the first time we made that decision, second time we made the decision, I was also thinking the same thing. Let me, let me just give it one last shot. So so I, I'm not sure that would have been my last shot if we didn't find some sort of success over there. But but yeah, this is how I rationalized it. I felt that I had all these lessons fresh in my mind before things get too heavy. Let me just try it again. And it was clear to me that I should try it again. I didn't really dawdle on that decision. Yeah. So it did get I it didn't get harder. There were more considerations, but it was still clear to me. Wow. Um, I can't imagine how tough it was each time around. And I think you also said something which was very true, right? Which is that you learn something each time around, right? From that failure. And I think a lot of founder friends I know end up, you know, they fail somewhere along the way, right? And and they just walk out thinking they're a failure, right? And the interesting part is there's also something they learned, right? And if they have that self-awareness, which I think most of them do, they actually can do a better shot the second time around, right? The third time around. Exactly. Um, exactly. So in some ways, like, you shouldn't quit too early uh, and you should play the second or third time more wisely compared to the first time you play it, right? Um, and I think that's hard because I think a lot of founders can't do it the other way around, which is if I do it once, I fail, that means I have no more tries at whatever it is and all the stuff I learned is irrelevant, which is, I think a very, you know, pessimistic yeah. way, right. Of looking at it. And I think it's but the scary I, part. I of also, it. I also think that it's not for everyone. Um, I was, I was in a really fortunate solution because I had a soft landing. I had family that supported me. It was um, as much as I would love to, to, to seem like, Oh, Hey, look, I made all these tough decisions to I'm a hero. It really wasn't like that. I, to me, it was, it was an obvious decision. It didn't even, it wasn't really that much of a struggle. But like I said, I don't think it's for everyone. In fact, many of the times when we have uh, interns or when people ask me, hey, should I start up? I have this great idea. Sometimes I joke like, uh, no, don't. It, it's going it, to gonna kill you. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna feel like shit for five years. You're going to not have a salary for three years. You know, that, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I half jokingly say that. Uh, part of me actually means it. Um, I think it, it's really not for everyone. Um, yeah, so so I can I think it can be tough for many many people. Um, but I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's so true. Uh, and I oh too also make that joke because you know it's like there was a nice uh, Harvard did this analysis and it was like if you take all the founders and you look at their earnings right, including the payouts etc. You know, so it's a function of obviously founders who succeed versus founders who don't succeed. Yeah. And obviously when founders succeed, there's also small success and there's large success, right? So you yeah. sum all of that up and you look at their expected lifetime earnings, um, it's actually lower than that of you staying at a job in aggregate, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, so the average founder is going to make less than if you stayed at your job. Exactly. And there's a survivorship bias, right? There's a survivorship bias. So people only remember the successes, but they really don't see the 99 other people that, that didn't, didn't succeed. Exactly. And I think that's the crux of it, right? Which is that if you actually look at that analysis, yeah, the truth is becoming to be a founder is suboptimal if your maximization is actually, you know, making money, right? You know, yep. uh, so it's interesting because of two dimensions, right? The first dimension is um, that means people who want to become founders and people who are founders are much more aware about this. And so we're much more like, whoa, like don't become a founder if you want to make money because that's not the right way to think about it because you're not yeah. going to do it. Yeah. Even though the press makes it, like I said, seem like is the 
easiest way to make money. Um, and then secondly, you know, I think you and I were kind of discussing it and around it is like the joy of being a founder is not, it's not the money per se because there isn't any for yeah. a long, long time. You don't pay anything yourself salary and sure there's some expected payout in the future. But it's also whether you enjoy the problem, the team, the, the uh, autonomy and freedom and control uh, of leadership, right? Um, That's right. And doing those things is what many people will pay money for in that sense. Uh, yeah, so exactly. I think it's much larger than just financial outcomes. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that I, I, I just, just came to mind was that I think maybe one of the more unique things about my entrepreneurship journey is that um, I would say it's uh, more opportunistic. So if you, if you ask me, do I have a, a great passion for hospitality, right? Because we're in the hospitality space. I can honestly tell you, no, I, I'm not super passionate about hospitality. Uh, but if you ask me, are you passionate about solving problems? Yes, I am. And I want to uh, uh, solve them with maximum efficiency. So if you look at our, our company journey, we went from retail to uh, social commerce, to hospitality, and now we're in hospitality uh, to stay in, in, in travel. Um, uh, I, I didn't know and I could not have foreseen back when I started the company that we would end up here. And I think that for, for, for I'm not sure about other founders, but because you know, many founders always say that I had this dream, this vision, and this is how the world should be. And I'm going to work towards it. I, I actually am of the opposite view. I don't think that, that for many people, I don't think it happens like that. Uh, kind of stumble into it. You kind of survive to the point where you find an opportunity that, that coincides with a, a larger vision, a larger goal which is in my case, solving problems, um, making things more efficient. And then you grab onto that opportunity and you hold on for dear life. So I think that that um, founders really, really need a lot of grit and they should be, be a bit flexible about the kind of industry that they're in or the, the, the what is the exact problem that they're solving. Yeah, so just just came to mind when you, when you were talking just now. So, you know, you know it, how do you, I mean, you know, through all these things, like how did you uh choose to be brave, right? Because each time around you, you chose to pick yourself up and do it again. Are there like ways where you like found balance? Was it in family? Was it in books? Was it in mentors that helped you kind of like bring out the energy to keep going? So for, for me, I think that the way that I run the company, the way that I operate would have been very, very different if I didn't have my three children. So in a way, the three kids made things really difficult because uh, there was a, a lot of energy and a lot of time needs to be dedicated to them, right? But they have also taught me patience and they have also taught me... Uh, um, sometimes I, 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 I compare myself to a rubber band, uh, a rubber band that can stretch almost infinitely because of the, the, the stress. And I think that without the kids sort of helping me stretch a little bit more each time, training me to stretch a little bit more each time, I don't think I will be able to do what I do right now. Um, I think that uh, I would be a lot less patient in the way that I deal with my colleagues. I would be a lot less, uh, uh, and, and, and to the detriment of the company, I feel. Um, so I think the kids give me a lot of balance. The kids give me uh, the training that I need. It has helped me also find methods to cope with the, the, the stress. Like for example, uh, because uh, one of the things that I've learned is that if I am really, really upset with one of them, one of the kids, I just force myself to laugh. And that physical laughter actually kind of switches me to think, 
hey, um, actually things aren't so bad. Let's let's just work through this and and, and make sure that uh, we we stop them from screaming their heads off rather than me losing my temper and shouting at them and 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 and, and going berserk on them. So that also helped me in, in in the company, right? During really really stressful periods, sometimes I just force myself to laugh and then figure some some other solution out of the problem, even if the solution even if the problem seems intractable. So I think that the kids have really been uh guiding light in the way that I, I run the company, the way that I lead my life. Uh, and if you're thinking, if you're talking about balance, they, they definitely balance me out. So more and more, I find myself trying to spend a bit more time with them, dedicated to them, times where um, I, I put my phone on, on, on do not disturb mode and just spend that time with them because it, it gives me that what I need to, to continue dealing with the difficulties of running a company. So you said about, you know, the fact that, you know, becoming a parent has helped you become a better leader, right? Um, and I think that's a big concern for a lot of folks, right? Because there are so many founders who are kind of like saying a bunch of different things, which are all fundamentally about a trade-off between family and being a founder, right? So some people will say like, well, uh, I'm going to become a parent, uh, so I shouldn't set up a startup now, right? <laughs> you know, uh, And then uh, other folks are like, oh, I'm a founder already, and can I have children because I'm worried that it impacts you know, my, the investor's perception of me, uh, whether I'm committed to work, um, or, you know, the other way of it would be, I'm concerned that I won't be able to give time to the kids, or I'm concerned I won't be give enough time to the startup. Uh, and then the other f- people who are currently parents uh, raising kids, and they're like, oh, can I ever be a founder because I'm a parent, I have to run all these errands and do the stuff at home, right? Uh, yeah. So... Like, would you have any advice or thoughts about this? I think everyone's case is unique, right? Um, for myself, I have a wife who is very, very supportive. She doesn't really care if we live in riches or we live in a dump. Well, I probably shouldn't say that. She, probably, I hope she doesn't see this, but, but yeah, I, I, I mean, she's she's very, very supportive. And 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 um, uh, I remember when 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 we had to pivot the second time when we ran out of money the second time, I I did ask her, hey, will you will you hate me if I decided to just give it one more shot. Then she just looked at me and she said, "Why? Why would I? Why would I stop you from doing what you want to do?" I think in her mind, she was she she also realized that you know if she were to say no at that point in time, and I would always have this uh, thought at the back of my head where what if I had done this? What if I had succeeded this this time around? And I I don't know whether that would eventually uh, grow into resent. I I don't know. So it's the way that we. We conduct our relationship, so I, I, we, both of us, we always give each other the space, the, the whatever you want to do, go ahead. I will support in whatever way possible, um, and I think it's. I was very fortunate to have that sort of relationship with my wife. Um, I mean, not everyone's relationship is different. I don't think that there is a one size fits all thing. Uh, with families, it's always very, very complicated. For every founder, it's, it's, I think it's going to be very unique to their case, um, and I don't think it would be fair for me to say whether whether someone should go ahead and do it or, or not. So I guess the only piece of advice that I, I can give is um, look at your family circumstances. And if, if um, I mean, ultimately for me, I think family always comes first. So if my wife had said at that point in time, no, come on, just stop already. I don't know how long, how far you're going to go with this. I would have stopped. I, I really would have stopped. And, and that would have been it. Um, yeah, so so it really depends on the person's priorities and I guess they have to make that decision on their own. Yeah, I think that's a heavy truth, right? I mean, the truth is that, like you said, um, you know, when it comes to family and career, you know, the truth is um, 
if you have more resources, it, the trade-offs are easier, right? You know, yeah. uh, if you have a better family, it's easier to do career. If you have a better career, it's easier to do family, right? So there's a bit of a self-reinforcing positive feedback cycle, right? Um, yeah. And so I think the tricky part is just like sometimes, you know, where it goes case by case is whether, you know, pushing on one side or pushing on the other side is, it's, a, it's a definitely a trade-off in the short term, right? And the question is just like over the medium to long term, can you plan and, structure your you know founder journey or your family journey in a way that makes it easier to do the other side of the feedback loop so yeah yeah no easy answers honestly mm. well so there you are and you kind of like build out this product that suddenly starts to take off right um, and the way i think about it feels like a no-brainer to me as well because you know basically like there's this hotel room you're inside it and then every time i want to order something i have to flip open a very lousy menu yeah. and then I have to press a call button and then sometimes it gets picked up by food uh, dining or sometimes it doesn't or if my wife wants more towels um, you know we hit housekeeping on a button uh, and sometimes it gets picked up and sometimes it doesn't right and so yeah. you know it's a bad user experience using the room I mean how many times have I also called reception to set up an alarm right <laughs> you know <laughs> you, you mean you still do that <laughs> I still do that, yeah. You want uh, to so I did, yeah, I want the old school ones because I know people they try to give an alarm clock and everything, but then you're like, you said, you know, for work meetings you normally try to do both, right? You do both the alarm clock, and you still get a, a to be call sure from that you wake so up. Yeah, you have to be double sure. You set your phone alarm as well, right? So I, and then obviously I call operator, and a poor operator has to burn, you know, thirty seconds talking to a sleepy guy saying. Sorry, did you mean 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., sir, for, uh, you know, the alarm, right? Yeah. So uh, it feels like this is a no-brainer. You're digitizing that whole, every single function on that phone. And obviously, it feels like it saves. Uh, it's a better experience for the guests because now you can do it in bed. You can do it in the bathroom. <laughs> you can do it while you're traveling from um, your attraction to the hotel room. No, or even right? from the airport to the hotel, right, on your way there. You can already start. Start your check-in. Yeah, you can already start that process. Exactly. So it's asynchronous. Yeah. Uh, it's better user experience. It obviously saves a ton of labor for the poor housekeeping or whatever to pick up yeah. the phone. Yeah. And probably also improves like the service rate, right? Because normally if you call housekeeping and you don't pick up, then the guest gets pissed off a little bit. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, it feels like it's a no-brainer to me. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, how do you think about the benefits for what you're building? I think that now is... In, in the middle of this pandemic, uh, especially now that we are starting to recover, this is a really, really critical time for hotels to think about the digital experience and how they're going to change the way that they run moving forward. So with, with, with COVID-19, you see a case where hotels around the world have retrenched, of, uh, have retrenched many of their staff. And suddenly, when, when, when things start to recover, especially now that you're seeing in Europe where they're starting to open up, uh, when you speak to the, the, the CEOs of hotel chains over there, they're expecting higher than 100% occupancy over the summer. Suddenly, everyone is hiring at the same time. Everyone is trying to, 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 to hire the very same people that the other companies are all hiring. Um, and many of these people have already found jobs. Right? You can't expect them to go like one year without finding a job. right? Almost everyone has found, has found jobs. So there, there's a real labor crunch over there. And, and in fact, many hotels also, they, they, they're kind of stunned. They don't know what to do because, say, I, I, I hire right now. Am I so sure that six months down the road, things are going to be as rosy as it looks like for the next month? It's really hard to say with the pandemic, right? You can you see, look at how APEC 
uh, went from the shining light of recovery just three months ago to now everything seems to be going badly. And now and Europe was the opposite, right? They looked like they were suffering three months ago. Now they're all recovering. It's summertime. Let's go out and, and travel and go out and have our holidays. Lockdowns are starting to be eased up. Things change so fast, right? So it's it's a it's a really interesting time for hoteliers right now. They ha- it's it's I would say it's a it's an impossible time for them. And this is where I think uh, the benefits really lie, where they're looking at they're looking at these solutions like ours, and they're saying, hey, this sort of thing might be an infinitely scalable solution to our problem. I could uh, maximally depend on four or five staff, and this four or five staff could handle. 100% occupancy, 120% occupancy, no problem with the help of this solution. I no longer have to hire staff at very short notice to be able to, to, to secure my, my, the, the, the same level of service for my 100% occupancy in, in summer. So that's how, how I think hotels should think about it. I, I, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for hotels to, to change the way that they run, where in the past, they've always thought, you know, I'm, I'm hospitality, right? I need that human touch. I need people there to speak to my guests. But what many of them didn't realize in the past was that these interactions, not, not all interactions require the human touch. Where you want that human touch is where charisma, humor, uh, creativity comes into play. Things like picking up the phone, calling the call center, I need more towels, can you, or can you wake me up at 6 a.m.? All these things require none of that. All these things can and should be automated. And that's how I think hotelers should start to think about it. That's where the benefits come in. Remove the elements of, human, of interaction that, really human touch doesn't give that extra benefit and start letting your staff focus on where it does benefit things like hey you know maybe a guest wants to wants to they lost their luggage and i need someone to help me find their luggage the hotel staff can actually be the ones to say hey let me make a phone few phone calls for you or if the the guest uh, uh and the guest is a regular and the hotel staff knows them they know that hey you you, you like japanese food um, why don't you go to this new Japanese restaurant that opened up recently? That's where they can actually spend their time and their effort and their energies on making that guest ju- uh, journey and their guest experience special rather than really picking up the phone and asking for towels. Yeah, I think, I think hoteliers need to understand and to recognize that this is where things are heading. These are where, this is where the important side of hospitality is and they should focus on this. All the rest of it, leave it to technology. And it's also where... It's also what guests expect, right? Even before uh, COVID, guests were already expecting self-service solutions for things like getting water bottles. But hoteliers weren't responding to it. In, in, in the surveys that we were looking at, 75%, 80% of guests were already asking for these things. But human touch, human touch always came to the fore. I know I still want somebody to pick up the phone and, and, and answer these things. So guests have been asking for it. In the COVID pandemic, it's become even more important. Guests now demand these things because I want to feel safe. I want contactless solutions. I want to make sure that if I don't have to deal with a human to, 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 to risk catching COVID, I don't want to do that. And so it becomes so much more poignant for hoteliers to, to start to deal with this in a, in a scalable way right now. So that's how I think of the benefit. That's how I think our product and products like ours give benefits to hotels. And they really should start looking at it this way. Yeah. And I think that's the dream, right? Which is that, you know, at the end of the day, the hotels ought to create that best experience. It doesn't matter... Um, how is done, but the fact that it is done, you know, early mm. and that is done, right? You know, um, and I think that's kind of like the reinvention of like so many things, like you know, like you know, look at McDonald's and um, you know, they you know originally thought that you know there's a human touch for the cashier, etc. 
But it turns out that when they yeah. installed those like self-order kiosks, you know, exactly, um, Jeremy, actually exactly. sales went up, right? Uh, because people felt like, okay, I can ask for more stuff, more toppings, I can make a decision. Um, and so labor costs went down and revenues went up, right? And so everyone's mm. like, wow, cost goes down, revenues go up. And McDonald's suddenly is like, okay, we've got to roll this out everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, but it's also the same thing for like, you know, so many things, right? You know, like, you know, airplane self-checkout, and check in um same things for um you know shop supermarkets check out i think so much stuff is just um reducing these very um transactional jobs right yeah, uh, yeah. and allowing humans to focus more on the relational stuff and i think the mcdonald's example was really great i mean in fact now now you see the case where even if there is a cashier standing there people go to the self-service kiosk to key in their order so it's a really really interesting phenomenon that we are, we are observing right where you could go to the cashier you could just tell them what you want right there but people still go to the self-service kiosk and take their time to select i think there isn't that human pressure where you might start to think like well i need to be uh, subconsciously you might think i need to be polite to the cashier i don't want to 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 wait too long i haven't decided what i wanted yet so i want to take my time to decide there are all these subconscious thoughts that run through their mind and and that's why i think that the trend is towards self-service people prefer things like that yeah, which is so true because, yeah, if I have a very unique order, I don't really want to tell that to a person because I'm worried that they don't catch it all and I don't want to waste their time in that sense. Yeah. Um, and also, I think there's a huge discovery component, right? Because as you play around the menu, visual menu uh, in McDonald's, you get to discover promotions, you get to discover... Uh, it's a fun experience, fundamentally, yeah. right? To yeah. craft the exact meal you want to have. And, uh, and it's also visual, right? versus um, when you talk to someone is just a, a voice yeah. conversation, right? And even yeah. more so in a hotel, right? Which is, you know, you're dialing in, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think one interesting thing as well is that you've also been able to grow, right? And, you know, when you talk about success, you've been able to grow from zero to 1% to 2% to 4% to 8% yeah. to 16% and now to 25% over for the Singapore market share by hotel rooms, right? So what do you think has uh, allowed you to get from zero to 25%? I think this this relates to one of the earlier questions, right? As in, how have we been brave? Um, so um, one, of the, one of the really great decisions that we made uh, was when COVID first hit, we, I was thinking, is this it for us? Are we gonna are we gonna uh, are we gonna die during this period? Because all the hotelers have been hit so badly, right? Why would they be able to find the money to pay us for our services? Our revenue is probably gonna drop to zero. And um, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, we have a few options. Should we pivot? Should we find other industries to, to go into? And then I also realized that you know that's probably what everyone is thinking, right? That's what everyone in the space is probably thinking about doing let's go find another industry that has money outside of the travel industry so then I, I decided hey why not let's do something else let's double down in this space um let's see how we can help hoteliers during this period and use this opportunity to build that relationship with them that we can then convert uh into paid customers in the future and that's exactly what we did so we took our our fmb module which was previously used for in-room dining and we modified it to allow for delivery and takeaway we gave it out for free to all the hotels in Singapore. And that proved to be a really, really great decision because by the end of the year, last year, we were able to convert all of them into paid customers. And because everyone leaving the market left it wide open, we were basically able to just walk in and take everything that we, we could get, which was, which was really, really wonderful. 
And now, moving forward this year, we're actually doubling down on further on it. And what we really want to do and what differentiates ourselves uh, vouch from the rest of the competition is that we are trying to create a new category of software for hotels, guest experience platform or guest experience OS, right? However you want to call it. Because hoteliers, when you, when you set up a hotel, what, what you're thinking about is, okay, first thing I need to buy is my PMS, my reservation engine. Uh, PMS is property management system. My reservation engine, uh, maybe my housekeeping software. These are the things that I need to run operationally. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to introduce a new element inside there where it's guest experience, uh, guest experience OS, guest experience platform, where they also have to think, hey, now as my guests demand a digital experience as well, how do I give it to them? And that's why you, when you look at the, the way that we've been developing products, we started off with FAQs and then we went to room requests, facilities booking, uh, F&B. Now we're going to mobile check-in. We're going to a reservations concierge to service the guests even before they make their booking at the hotel in the pre-stay phase. Uh, we're looking at in the future, how do we help to in the post-stay phase to get them to come back, do surveys, things like that. We're really building an, a guest experience platform, a guest experience layer that a hotel can come to us and with one partner, they can, they can take care of the entire journey. And I think that's what really separates us from the rest of the competition. And that's what we're working towards in the future. No one else is able to do this. No one else has even this vision, that the, the same vision that we have to, to, to get out there and build this end-to-end this, um, -end guest experience platform. Yeah, so this is how we see the market. And this um, also relates to, to both the brave question that you asked and how we see the benefits for the hotels, where it comes out. Yeah, I think that's is a no-brainer, right? Because at the end of the day, it's just becoming that communications layer between, uh, you know, hospitality and customers, right? And you're just intermediating between both like the bot approach and the live, uh, you know, support approach, right? And yep. having yep. that graceful switch between both contexts um, in the modality way, but also across the different uh, stages of that customer experience. So it's a very organic growth uh, process um, to right. do that. So, you know, I think what's, you know, interesting, um, you know, one last question I have for you before we, you know, wrap things up here is, mm. you know, when you think about, you know, at the end of the day, you know, for someone who is evaluating your product versus all the other, other products, right, in the market, right, the A or B or C or whatever it is, what would you want them to take away is to say, like, this is where, you know, Joseph and the team at Vouch are really 10x better than everybody else on? First of all, we provide that end-to-end -end guest experience. We're the only company that can give them everything in one shot. When you go to a tactical level, we're really the only company that pays as much attention to UI and UX. And that's really, really important. You look at how we deploy our products. In the past, hotels still, they already had self-service solutions. Download my app, right? And you could make room requests from my app. Where we did things differently was we said, hey, you know, if I'm a guest at a hotel and I'm going to stay there for two nights, there is no way in hell I'm going to download an app, create an account, link up my stay to make a bottle, uh, to make a request for a bottled water. No way. There is no way. So immediately we looked at it and we said, you know what? Let's lower that barrier to entry. We're going to make it such that they scan a QR code. There is no app download needed. They can already start asking questions, make room requests without creating an account, linking up their stay. doesn't matter. Let's do that. And because of that, we were able to get really, really high use rates uh, inside the, our products. In the hotels that we work with, we power between 70 to 90% of all the transactions that happen in the hotel. So it boils down to, we go even deeper, right? When we're looking at the, the, the flows, the flows of the product, if, some, if, if we started off with five steps, 
to get to 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 get to the end of the 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 room request. We then think to ourselves, hey, can we cut this down to three steps, to two steps, to one step? Can we cut it down as much as possible so that we really remove all friction in the product to get them to what they need? And because of the religious uh, attention that we pay to this sort of thing, we are able to create products that people actually want to use. When, uh, we, we, for example, when a guest uses it for the first time, we have data to show that they're going to come back to use it again for something else or even the same thing again. They're going to they, they come in, they immediately see that, hey, I'm using this for room requests. I look at the buttons below the, in, in the product and I know I can order room, room service from here. I can order food from here. I can book facilities. I can book a taxi from here. It's so obvious to them. And because of their experience using it, the good experience they had using it for the first time, whether it's any of these services, they will come back and they will continue using it. Most companies, what they do is, firstly, they deploy one thing only. It could be mobile check-in, just one thing, or room request, just one thing. And they do it in a way that is really clunky People use it once and I'm never going to come back again um, to do the same thing, let alone other things. And, and because of that, you have products that are launched that maybe on paper fulfill a certain purpose, but in practicality, doesn't really move the needle for the hotel. They deploy a product like that. On, wow, it looks great. I get on the media, but does it deliver value? No, it doesn't. And you look at us where we deploy one hotel, two hotels in a group, suddenly the whole group looks at it and say, hey, how is this hotel doing so, so well? Why is this hotel able to generate the kind of results that other hotels are struggling to? And then they realize, hey, it's because of the vouch solution. Let's roll it out across the rest of our hotels. We are able to continuously and repeatably do this, going from one hotel, two hotels from a group to the whole group. And it's down to the, the attention that we pay to the products that we built, the UI, the UX, and making lowering the barrier to entry. So hoteliers out there, what I would say is not all digital concierge products are created equal. Look at the kind of results that they're able to drive. Look at what the company is really trying to do with their products. Are they trying to make this uh, on paper useful to the hotel? Or are they focused on what guests really want and how to drive the number of guest transactions, which is what we focus on. When we build products, we prioritize what guests want versus what the hotels want. Hotels may say, hey, I want this thing inside my inside the digital concierge. We look at the data and we tell them, no, your guests aren't asking for this. Even if we build this, they're not going to use it. So don't do this. Do this other thing instead. And because of this information that we give them, they start to build their trust in us. They start to realize that, hey, Vouch knows what they're doing. They, they are focusing on the right things. They're able to build products that deliver real value to my hotel. I'm sorry I went on this diatribe, Jeremy, but that's really how we think about things. We prioritize what guests want versus what the hotels want. Amazing. Well, that's a great way to wrap things up. Uh, and I love, 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 love this product so much. Um, and, you know, I think that's why I really kind of endorse, I think, the way that you think about things. Um, and, you know, I think there are three things that really stood out for me in this conversation uh, from my mm. notes. Uh, I think the first one is, I think your no BS, authentic reality about what it means to be a founder, both in, you know, foolishly <laughs> and naively leaving a cushy job with our potential to being a founder, first time founder, but actually the real stuff of deciding to be a second time founder and decision to become a third time founder. So I think that's a huge set of decisions that, you know, had to be made. And I really, you know, appreciate that uh, honesty and reality, you know, because it's going to be so important for so many other founders making that set of decisions about whether to keep going um, in the midst of failure. Um, and the second thing, of course, I really appreciated was I think your advice on how to grow as a leader uh, for yourself in the context of being a parent and how that's helped you become a better leader, but also in a context of whether uh, and how parents should think 
about becoming a founder and how founders should think about becoming a parent. Uh, so a lot of real truth uh, there. <laughs> and lastly, of course, is you know I love uh, you know you call it a diatribe, but you know I call it your passion uh, for solving this insane problem called why is everything in a hotel taking so long and all of it getting botched? And why is such a pain in the ass to get it solved versus, hey, you know, welcome to the real world of, you know, uh, you know, the 21st century, which is like, you know, we can do this on our own and self-serve approach. And I love the approach of how you've kind of unlocked not just a 10x solution, but also a 10x go-to-market. So honestly, Joseph, I'm so inspired by you and I'm so happy that I've gotten to know who you are. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for your time and thanks for, thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.